Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, I'd like to encourage you please to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, the 13th chapter. In just a few moments, we will be in Matthew 13. We're going to navigate our way there by setting the stage for this part two of this new series. By way of encouragement, admonition, exhortation, begging, I really need you to watch part one. If you weren't with us last week during part one, I don't usually beg you to watch my sermons. I mean, it's enough here and there, right? But last week's sermon lays a foundation for the series that we find ourselves in this season. And I share some information and some resources and some research, some data that will help inform our study as we move forward together. So if you showed up today, and today is your first Sunday of the new year, I simply encourage you sometime this week, go to our website and look up the first part of this series. Here's what we're talking about. The church in America is in a crisis and has been for some time. People are leaving organized religion and specifically the church in record numbers, disturbing numbers. But the research reveals something that fills this pastor's heart with more hope than I have words to express. And it's this, while they are leaving Churches everywhere, they are not leaving faith. That there is still something in the heart of those who have walked away from organized religion, still something in the heart that longs for transcendence, for mystery, for the worship of something that their bones tell them is out there. And if We have the eyes to see and the ears to hear where their stories have taken them. We may be able to do something about it to love them in such a way that they discover they haven't left faith. It's only being reborn in them. But it means that we take a long, hard look at some of the very well-trusted research that has come out in recent years, and we hold it up before us. And alongside that, we hold up sacred scripture. And in a posture of humility, we as a church ask the Spirit to teach us something. To show us what we must do about what we see happening before us because it's happening on our watch. And some of the data that we are interpreting and reading along the way begin to reveal certain trends in the reasons why people are leaving organized religion. 
And, and some sources say it's these six things. Other sources, well, it's these six things. And some of them overlap, and there is such overlap that what I am intending to do in our study for these few weeks together is to, to try best I can to synthesize some of these reasons, many of the reasons why people are telling us they're leaving so that we might respond in love. Now, one of the sources, Barna, or the CEO of Barna, David Kinnaman, uh, produced a book not too long ago called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Church and Rethinking Faith. In, in, in his research, he reveals that there are six reasons young people move away, and two of them I want to address today. I want to synthesize these two in one conversation with you. He says that there are some reasons they're leaving, and and it includes, according to their experiences, the church is too shallow, and the church is too safe. What they mean, if I can respectfully summarize that, if I can pastor explain it here in a a respectful way, it's it's too shallow. We talk about the same things, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. We talk about the same things, but we don't talk about the complexities that face their lives every day they get up and go to school. The complexities of living in a world that is increasingly diverse and in their face and how do I navigate relationships and the complexities of issues that deserve more than placating answers. And they have seen in their experience Church is only willing to go about this deep. It's too shallow. And they have said that the church is too safe. And what is meant there in the research is that it's too overprotective. That for many years, the church has spoken of the world in such a way as everything outside these doors is a danger to you. It's a risk to you. The only place safe is in here. So don't listen to this music. Don't watch these movies. Don't hang out with these people. Don't appreciate that art. We'll take care of all that in here. And so we have Christianized music and movies and art, which is compelling and not compelling depending on the subject matter. Is too shallow and too safe. So for just the time that remains today, I want to talk to you today about one of the many tasks before us. What do we do when my religion is way too simple? What do I do when my religion is way too simple? But before we talk about that, there are two things we got to cover. On the way to talking about when my religion is way too simple, we have to talk about two things. We have to talk about moralistic, therapeutic deism. Try that on Wordle. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And the down and dirty of digging deeper. Moralistic therapeutic deism and the down and dirty of digging deeper. But this sermon needs prayer. Would you bow with me in a moment? Good and loving God, we recognize and we confess to you that you deserve more than we ever can bring you. You deserve so much more than we can ever muster up. We can muster gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and it would not be enough. We can gather 
every good talent, every perfect word, and yet all you really have asked for is us. Well, you got us. Here we are. Right before you, the transcendent, all-powerful, holy maker of the universe. You got us. And we're troubled this morning, God, because we have people in our family. We have people at work. We have people in our classes. We have neighbors who, for whatever reason, are walking away. Will you show us something today that may make a difference? Even in this moment, Lord, there may be one of us here on the very brink of giving up. Will you show us why it's too soon to give up? Speak to us in a way that only you can. In the name of Jesus, the Lord of life. Amen. Amen. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's a mouthful. It's a word that was originally coined by two sociologists. The names of the sociologists, Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton, in their book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, they conducted studies after thousands of interviews with young people in America who grew up in church. And they began to notice trends about the kind of contours of their faith, the characteristics of the way they talked about faith, the way they thought about mystery and church and God and the universe. And they they coined this term based on what these who have walked away, who are young, tell them about their experiences. Moralistic, theist, uh, therapeutic deism has become their chosen way of practicing faith. Now, to define it, I'll just use the author's words. Here's how they describe moralistic, therapeutic deism. You know, God is something like a combination of divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process. I, I want to read it again. I let it sink in for just a moment. God is something like a, a combination, yeah, kind of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. Always on call, takes care of all the problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel, to feel better about themselves, and doesn't become too, you know, too personally involved in the process. Trouble is, this definition of faith and life and mystery and, 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 and God seems to rub counter to orthodox Christian belief and practice. Yet these are kids who grew up in the church and gained their impression of God and the church from the church. Some of the tenets 
of moralistic therapeutic deism, they list five. And these are like the core values of this way of thinking. And it's not something that any of the adherents would claim. It's not something that they make t-shirts for. I'm a member of the moralistic therapeutic deism church. It's not that. It's this is a way to describe something that is actually happening. And they have about five tendencies that begin to emerge to the top that describe their way of thinking and believing. Number one, there is a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. So far, so good. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most religions. Okay. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about one's self. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, I want to read the same list at a little bit faster clip, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of somebody you love. Does it sound like something they think? Number one, a God exists who created everything, the world, and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. I'll buy that. Number two, God wants people to be good, yeah? nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most of the world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy right? and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except, except when the roof caves in, when, when, you know, when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Trouble with this line of thinking is that there's nothing wrong with many of these items. Does God want us to be nice? Yeah. God want us to be fair? Yeah. So what's wrong with moralistic theist, the, therapeutic de, de, deism? <laughs> First of all, it's the name. That's what's wrong with it. What's wrong with moralistic therapeutic deism? Nothing except any who wish to be my followers must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For they who seek to save their lives will lose them, but they who lose their lives for my sake shall find them. I mean, what's, what's wrong with trying to be happy? Nothing wrong with happy, right? No. But we gotta remember the words that fell from those lips divine in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. I mean, what's wrong with wanting to construct a life in, in which people are fair to me and I'm fair to them. I get what I want and everybody's good. And if you're good, you go to heaven. Everybody's good, right? Nothing wrong with being good except... It's void of the liberating truth that was confessed by the apostle. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And now the life that I live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So I will not nullify the grace of God. For if one is justified by the law, by doing well, by being good, if one is justified by a good life, then Christ has died for nothing. Now, the trouble with this ever-increasing, growing way of thinking about life and mystery and God and the universe is that it, it, it rubs against the grain of the very character and nature of being transformed by Christ, where you lay down one life and Christ raises you back up to live another. Now, what is my point? My point is not to be in judgment of those who think this way. Let me be very, very clear. We are not here to stand in judgment of those who are wired to think that way. We are here today to stand in judgment of ourselves for creating a condition that makes that kind of frosting on the cake of faith possible. We are culpable of holding up before our children and our youth, our young people, our young adults, a version of faith that is so easy that it does not prepare them for the truth of life, the wounding that will come, the anger that will be theirs, the trouble that will come. And if you don't teach them about the trouble, you can't teach them about the victory of overcoming the trouble through Christ. See, we have decided instead to hold up a consumer-driven version of the faith so that we attract everyone and entertain everyone and keep them happy. And in so doing, they are happy, they are entertained, and then they leave and are not prepared for the fight of their lives. Now, in the research, there is some, there is some reflection that comes. These researchers also ask these thousands of young people who have walked away from the church, what were your impressions of church growing up? What were the observations that you made? What kind of perception did you receive from your church? Tell us all about it. And what emerged to the top were these six. Number one, 31% of them say church is boring. But hear me, friends. They're not looking for a church to simply entertain them. That's what old folks like us think about them. That's what we assume about them. Well, they just want to be entertained. Well, hang on. The research actually indicates they're not looking to be entertained. They're not looking for a life of entertainment. They're looking for a life of being compelled by something important, of being provoked to a life that actually matters. And when they come into our churches, we talk to them about things that are so predictable and so familiar that we reinforce everything everybody already thinks. And my job, by the way, is not to come and reinforce everything you already think. As my calling demands, sometimes I come to comfort the afflicted, but other times I come to afflict the comfortable. And the truth is they're not looking to be entertained, but they are bored stiff by the predictability of a theology that is this shallow. It's like, I mean, somebody once said, going to a church that's boring is like, chewing on Kleenex for an hour. 
so they just leave. Data point number two, 24% or one quarter of them say faith is not relevant to their career or interests. They're like, no, I love my church. I love the people in my church. We have a great time. We do great retreats and the sermons are tolerable. The music is great, but nobody ever talks to me about how do I determine where I go to school and what do I choose as a vocation and who do I choose to marry and how do I work through those major decisions as if somehow we have a spiritual life when we talk about all Jesus-y stuff at church, but when it comes to everything else, the church has been silent. So they say it's not relevant to all of my careers or interests. Data point number three says 23% say the church doesn't prepare them for real life. Oh, they know the Bible stories. They can quote the scriptures, but My church didn't show me how to grapple with the complexities of life. Data point number four. 23% says the church doesn't help them find their purpose. Oh my Lord. When I read that, I, I, the church is based on following a person who made people drop their fishing nets and walk away. It's based on a person who made people leave lucrative careers at tax collection booths to follow him because he was so compelling and so welcoming and, and, and so healing that they were transformed. And these, our young, are seeing in their churches that we're talking about a lot of spiritual things, but you haven't talked to me about how do I wrestle with the question, why was I born? And where do I go from here? And what's the point of the whole thing? Data point number, whatever next. They say the Bible is not taught clearly or often enough. Now that one surprises you maybe because oh, they don't wanna hear about No, they do. What they don't wanna hear are platitudes about the Bible, predictable little one-liners that we've become so accustomed to quoting, they want to know where this thing come from. And if you tell me, God, that's not enough. How did it come together? Who wrote the parts of it? How did it fall in place the way it is now? And why is it that in some places it's, a, it's in such tension to the life I'm living? And not only that, in some places it's in tension with other places in itself that it's in tension with. Talk to me about that. But the churches are not. They skip right over Leviticus and go on to, you know. (laughs) And data point number five gave me the most heartburn. 20% say that God seems missing in their experience of church. Beloved, I, if you come here, If you go to a church and you leave without experiencing the transcendence of the presence of the maker of the universe, and you're not humble to your knees to wanna leave this place and and be different and be filled with hope and have your, your head lifted for a while, if that's not happening, if you don't experience God in this place, but you leave and say, well, the music was good and the preacher was kind of entertaining, then what are we doing? What is the point? We've got some work to do. The trouble is you and I, we have, 
We have been culpable at creating creating an attraction-based, consumer-driven model of church. If we could just get them here, keep them happy, keep them enjoying church, music will be just, and I'm not talking about just kids now. If the music is just right, the sermons are just short enough. If if, If it's all just right and you check my consumer boxes, well, then I'll stay. But if we don't do that, well, they may leave and go down the road to another place. Or how will we possibly compete if we don't keep them entertained and happy? I've got news for you. We've kept them entertained and kept them happy. And on their way out the door, they said, thanks for the entertainment and thanks for the happy. But we're going to go someplace where outside the church we find a reason to be alive. We're going to go someplace where we find an affirmation of this glorious world in all its brokenness so that we might find a reason to be a part of its repair. I got work to do. They're telling us that we're too safe and too shallow. Now listen, a term came out after I grew up called helicopter parents. You know what I'm talking about. Helicopter parents are the ones who overprotect their kids from every kind of harm, right? Listen, I was a kid of the 70s and 80s if you bought a car in the 70s, you had to pay an upgrade to get a seatbelt, okay? So I'm, safety was a relative term. And the, and the seatbelt was just a lap belt. We played on playground equipment that was rusted metal. You could chop your hand off in a seesaw. You get third degree burns in the summer on the slide. And we liked it, right? We were the generation of the lawn darts. Oh, remember lawn darts? These were long darts with a pointed edge. And the point of the game was you put a circle on the ground, you stand in it, you throw it up as high as you can, and then get out of the way so it doesn't impale you. What could possibly go wrong with that, right? We were a little bit crazy, but we knew something about the dangers of life. So helicopter parenting came out to describe those who want to protect the kids from all kinds of harm. And and don't get me wrong, we put the plastic covers on the outlets too. But in so doing, what else have we done? At some point, you can so overprotect a child that they'd never know that if you stick a fork in the thing, it'll light you up. And I wonder what happens that may explain a lot, right? I just, yeah. I wonder what happens when we so pad the lives of children they don't know the realities of the danger. There's another term that has come out, not helicopter parenting, but lawnmower parenting, where you lawn mow down every obstacle in their path so they have an easy path to walk. Trouble is, We can blame the parents for doing that kind of thing, being too, oh my gosh, they're going to get hurt. I just want to make it easy. But the church has done the same. Be afraid of everything outside these doors. Don't listen to that music. Watch those movies. Talk to those people. Appreciate that art. We'll do it all inside of here and keep you nice and safe where it's easy to follow Jesus. You know where that conversation is not happening? In North Korea, in China. Afghanistan, Iran, 
where they're not looking to the government or any institution to help them do their faith. They have fallen so madly in love with the the savior of their lives that the growth of the church is like wildfire there. Is it dangerous? Yeah. And what we've done in protecting our young to believe it's easy to follow Jesus. He just wants to be your buddy. You know, he's your best friend. Come here, Jesus. The downside of that is we haven't told them the truth about resurrection because you can't know resurrection till you know how to die. What are we going to do? We got to get truthful about the down and dirty of digging deeper. The down and dirty of digging deeper, do you realize it's time for the church to repent? And by repent, I don't mean like just spiritually, I'm so sorry, I said some bad things, I thought some bad thoughts. I'm talking about, I mean, repent for that too. That's a good idea. But I mean repent in the New Testament sense of the word. Change. To change in how we make more and deeper disciples of Jesus. More and deeper disciples who are able to weather any storm of life because they learned in the church, it's going to get hard out there. There's this beautiful story told, and, and what I'm going to do, Gene, you just dance with me up there in the booth. Just dance with me. I'm going to change some things up right here. There's this story in the Bible, and God, or the Lord says, you know, the sower went out to sow. And he threw the seed everywhere, and the seed fell in all kinds of ground. There was like... The, the path, which is packed down hard, the, the, the rocky ground and, and the thorny ground. And there was some fell on the good ground. And, and the, the good ground, it produced like a hundredfold, 60-fold, 30-fold. Well, but the seed that fell on the other ground had different fates. The point of Jesus speaking was don't worry about the soil. Just throw it out there because the church was brand new. The church was simply trying to get the good news of the seed of the kingdom out there. So don't worry about the condition of the soul. Let God take care of the soil. But I don't, and I preached that way for a long time. This is my 30th, 31st year of ministry in general. And I preached this kind of uh, parable many times over. And I said the same thing. Don't worry about the soil. You just cast the seed. God take care of the soil. I just don't know anymore. Because after two millennia of the church impacting the condition of the soil, we may have some work to do in the garden. Because there are people whose lives are like the path. And the path is packed down because of traffic. And there are people in our family and in our lives who have been walked on by life. And the soil is so hard. I could, we could preach all day long and throw the seed in their lives, it'll never break through because they've been walked on. But they walk into our church by chance. The church has an opportunity to, to either be the place where their soil can break up and receive the seed of, of love, or we can walk on them some more. So we see people coming in whose lives and lifestyles demonstrate to us they've been walked on by something and we can be so offended by it that we just walk on them some more you understand what i'm saying i mean i don't want to put you on on the spot here um taylor was your mom who said 
you don't know what bear chased him up that tree, right? You never know what has produced something in a person to make the choices they've made, but they come into churches all the time and they've been walked on and and you you throw the seed and it doesn't go through and you're like, what's wrong with you? They really need to change. And we just walk all over them some more. Or we could be the church where we are so grace-centered and patient with people that we say, there's a seat right here by me. I know your soul doesn't look the same as my soul. You've been places I ain't been. You've made some choices I've not made, but so have I. Why don't we work on this together until God breaks up the soil for both of us? But then he said, you know, some seed didn't fall on the path. It fell on the rocky ground. See, in Palestine, there there are places where the soil is just that that deep. And just beneath, there's this limestone base. And the seed falls, and it it grows up because it's good soil. It grows up. But when the sun rises and the heat comes down, the seed tries to, to penetrate and go down beneath and get the moisture from the soil, but it can't because there's that rock. And because of the shallowness of the soil, it can't withstand the heat of the day. I don't know why we're so surprised that young people leave the church. I don't know why we're so surprised young people leave the church. Because we have created a situation in which we expect so very little of them that their soil is only that deep. And it's not enough to withstand the heat of the day. At JCBC, we have a core value. We call it theological depth and diversity. That means that we value digging deeper. We don't splash around in the shallow end of the pool. We go deeper. We don't, let me say it this way. We shouldn't simply teach our children what to believe. We should teach them how to believe. So yeah, let's give them the Bible and show them how to pray. Let's teach them how to worship. But in addition to giving them the tools on what to believe, we've got to give them the tools that will penetrate the limestone beneath the surface so they can dig down deeper than the surface. That means we've got to teach them as their children to be curious, to not give up your curiosity about this big old universe that God made for you. And to ask questions and to to doubt and to struggle and to grapple with mysteries that just don't make sense to you and to do it out loud right here. Because if we don't, it happens a thousand times over. We teach the kids, well, you don't ask, just don't ask why, don't ask questions. The Bible says it, so we're just going to go with that. Then they go away to life, whether it's university or other places, and they're confronted by the true complexities of life, and then they're... Their faith falls down like a house of cards. Instead, listen, I have been accused in this church and others of preaching over people's heads. Can't have our teenagers in here because you preach over their heads. I mean, you preach over my head too sometimes. We can't have them in here. Okay, great, great. I've got an idea. Keep bringing them and together we teach them how to get their heads up. So then getting their heads up, they move off into life or go to school or do whatever, and they hear things that their roommates are falling apart over, and they say, that's new to you? I learned that in Sunday school. Are you kidding me? This is a big old universe, and God is using all of it. I do not want to be the pastor of a church whose children grow up to be a mile wide and an inch deep. 
I suspect you don't either. That means we've got work to do. On January the 29th, I have a sermon here called When My Faith or When My Religion is a House of Cards and I want every parent of any child of any age, you know, youth or younger, to be in this service. To help me do that, Pastor Robin is making sure that on that day, all of her volunteers are not parents of children. That means that somebody sitting in here needs to email the email on your screen right now and say, I will serve that day so that a parent can hear what our pastor has to say about building a foundation for your kids. So we'll just leave that up there for just a minute. And then he says, some fell not on the path and not on the rocky ground, but the thorny ground. And that may be the most sinister of all because it springs up because the soil is good, but it springs up with the thorns and the, the briars and the bramble that choke off life as the seed tries to grow. Do you know that the thorn is anything that distracts you from the growth of faith in your life. And what we have done is create a scenario in the church in America where we say to our our families, look, you come to church and we're gonna do some Jesus things and here's your spiritual life. Now, go and join this travel ball team and be on this dance squad and do this acting troupe and do 47 other things which are not bad, which are not evil. Any of them and all of them are good in and of themselves. But what we have done is we have said, do all of that and then also fit in some of this. And in so teaching them to compartmentalize their lives, they don't think that this has anything to do with all that. T.B. Maston, forgive the older language in this, but it's too good not to share. T.B. Masson had this to say, a man's religion should be as broad as his life. The man who has the right concept of religion will not speak of his business life, his social life, his religious life, but will make practical application of his religion in all phases of his activities. If we want to develop good soil in the church, we teach our own Some things are just thorns that need to be plucked from the soil. That we don't need to compartmentalize our life where we have a spiritual life here and everything else there. I I think I read somewhere around about the first chapter of Colossians. We have been created through him and for him. The first chapter of Philippians. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How do you do that in a church? By telling the truth to families who have so many thorns in the soil, you don't need everything you think you need. That you don't don't need to give your kids everything you think you need to give your kids. You don't need to do everything you think you need to do. That sometimes a little gardening is necessary for growth. Sometimes, and we will help you. We will get the We'll get the sores from the thorns ourselves with you to pluck up out of the soil distractions that are keeping you from raising up your family in the faith. Listen, I better knock it off. But I could keep going. Because he said some seed fell 
in the good ground. But do you know that even good ground needs to be broken up every season or so? You know, even good ground has to be plowed and turned under. Even good ground has to be fertilized and weeded. This church has more good soil than I have ever seen in my entire life. Do you know how much I love you? But the work of the church is to be, like I said last week, critical lovers and loving critics of the thing that we hold dear. We ourselves have to keep turning over that good soil to make sure, are we sure the soil is still as good as we thought it was? So that we too can receive the seed that God wants to plant for a new kingdom to be born. Well, I guess that's about it. You want to be a part of a church like that? Because I wouldn't want to leave one. I would never want to leave a church with that kind of courage. Would you? Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, you know, I, I'm not a member of this church. I want to be a part of that kind of church. I want to be a part of a group of followers who take so seriously real life. And they talk in honest ways about the complexities of life. I want to be a part of that, but I've never even given my life to Jesus. Maybe you need to begin with a prayer today that sounds something like this. Right where you are, right in your heart, you say, Lord, I recognize that maybe over the many, many years, you, you've had people casting seed of good news and forgiveness and, and, and kingdom kind of things over my life. But for whatever reason, my soil has been too walked on or maybe too rocky or too thorny but I want what only you can give me so if you will help me to remove the thorns and take out the rocks forgive me of all that I've done to put them in there I will follow you I'll be yours now and forever amen amen